From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We come to you today from a bus. Pegasus is meant to take cars off the road and shuttle people between the mountains and the metro. We'll ride with the head of CDOT, which is investing in some highways. But at the same time, we are also looking at incorporating more options into our system so that a traveler has choice on any given day of the week and there's not just one way to get around. I'll ask Shoshana Liu about stubbornly high greenhouse gas emissions from transportation, smoother sailing at Floyd Hill, what the labor shortage means for winter plowing, and the canyon. For the communities who live around there, having another way around is really important. It is hard to be in Grand Junction if Glenwood Canyon closes, and we need to think about what it means for the communities on both sides of the canyon when it closes. Thank you for supporting CPR. Every day, your membership is put to good work serving communities across our state. You ensure that news and music remain freely available to Coloradans everywhere. Your generosity helps make it all possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. By the end of this segment, I'll be in Idaho Springs. And so will our guest, the head of the State Transportation Department, Shoshana Liu. We will both be passengers. This is Pegasus. Uh, This is the new Bustang family shuttle that has been adding choices so that Coloradans have more ways to get to and from the mountains. The mountains? Yes, it started as a weekend service, but we're actually expanding into weekdays, too. The bus's paint scheme is a screaming teal. And how many does it seat? Seats uh, about 11, right? 11 11, people. Okay. Is that a real dent when you're talking about I-70 traffic? uh, It'll it'll get there. And, you know, 11 people driving together is a lot fewer vehicles on the road than 11 people driving themselves. I'm 6'2". Oh, the leg room's a little tight. This is Jerry, our driver. Hi, Jerry. Hello. Good morning. Jerry Thamanos. His smile is as bright as the bus. And as he drives us west from Denver, I'll ask Shoshana Liu about CDOT's biggest projects, also the ones it's not pursuing. And she'll answer some of your questions about the future of transportation in Colorado. We hop briefly onto I-25 through central Denver, one of the busiest stretches of highway in Colorado. CDOT recently said it no longer plans to expand the interstate here. We all know that the downtown projects have a lot of pros and cons, right? A place as dense as the one we're in right now, you can't do a big project without affecting the people who live in proximity you know, a great deal. So you've seen other downtown projects where they got tangled up by the complexities of dynamics and space. You probably know which one I'm talking about. I-70, yeah, maybe. For, ma- for many years. And, you know, every time you take on that kind of Um, complicated dynamic, it actually means that you're taking energy away from getting other projects built. So just as a matter of efficiency, you know, we'd rather focus on, you know, expanding the segments where we need to, fixing the safety configurations where we need to, you know, improving state of good repair on urban and rural roads alike than be involved in that kind of dynamic where there's a lot of potential downsides that affect people's lives in a very personal way. You know, we want to focus on getting projects done. Now we're making the transition from I-25 to I-70. You know, there are examples on Earth of interstates, highways, major thoroughfares 
through city centers actually being taken out and having something replace them that is more pedestrian and people-friendly. Do you think that CDOT would ever be in that position? I think recognizing that it was a long road to get there, when the central I-70 project opens up, you know, the city will look different. I mean, if you go to that spot where the project is, you can see the sky, you can see the mountains, and you know the highway is there in the buried configuration, but it does reconnect the city and it will. You know, that is one of the state-of-the-art technologies for dealing with that uh, dynamic tension between highways and cities. And, you know, we're about to open up one that, you know, will, in a very positive way, change the face of the city. With the, as CDOT sees it, the reunification of neighborhoods that were kind of bifurcated by the viaduct that I-70 used to have. Is that what I hear you saying? I suspect that a lot of people didn't know there was a way to see the mountains from that neighborhood until that viaduct came down. (laughs) But with that said, the highway will operate with more efficiency than before. Would you say that CDOT is moving away in the future, uh, as we've talked about with I-25? Do you see the agency as moving away from highways? Highways are incredibly fundamental to what CDOT does. And, you know, I think it's important to start by recognizing, you know, how many of us, how often rely on the system of urban and rural highways that we have. You know, it's in a lot of ways the sort of bread and butter that connects a very large state. You know, so we are very committed to taking care of our highways, to making them safer, you know, to, in cases where we need it, making sure that the capacity is kind of at level with the population we have today and not the one we had in 1960. But at the same time, we are also looking at incorporating more options into our system so that as in other parts of the country that have been more populous and denser for longer than Colorado, you know, a traveler has choice on any given day of the week and, you know, there's not just one way to get around. CDOT does still plan to expand I-25 between Denver and Fort Collins, I-270 in Commerce City. Why are those projects necessary? I think there are some who would push back and say, you can't build your way out of this in terms of highways. You can't expand your way out of traffic. Looking at 270, for example, that's not a problem that might exist in 20 years. That is a problem right now that has a very material effect on the ability to, you know, move freight through one of the busiest commercial areas of the state, you know, to move people between Denver and the U.S. 36 corridor. That road is an example of one where, you know, first of all, the bridges are in terrible need of uh, repair as soon as possible. You know, but there's also a mobility restraint because of the lack of capacity. You know, just to give you a kind of point of comparison, there are more lanes on Colorado Boulevard than on Interstate 270. You know, that's kind of asynchronous. Colorado is a major thoroughfare through Denver. Yes. But it's also a city street, essentially. And the fact that we have that kind of incongruity on a road that is necessary to, you know, move people and goods really throughout the state makes a very compelling case, uh, you know, for why we believe it needs that added capacity. At the same time, we know that it is a place where there are communities who must have a voice, and we are being very mindful of going about the process with an unprecedented degree of communication with them about how we do that project in a way where it makes their lives better. And, you know, you look at US 36 as an example where capacity was added. From Denver to Boulder, yeah, Boulder Denver to, Denver. to Boulder. Adding, you know, that managed lane to the road, you know, it looks nice. 
It carries people efficiently. It carries both transit and personal vehicular traffic. And the, you know, the entry and exit points are well integrated into where people live. It is possible. You say managed. That's another word for toll. Why are so many of these expansions toll lanes? Across the country, um, managed lanes, that is, that is the term of art, so I'll use it, are considered to be a sort of state-of-the-art option for making sure that at the times when people need to move efficiently, there's an option, they have to pay for it, but that is available to them that carries that traffic faster. You know, again, you never have to use it. You know, if your value of time is less than the cost of the toll, you can always take the free lane, but it gives people, again, a choice. And it also helps to pay for the roadway system. Is that the fundamental reason, do you think, that that's how CDOT is able to afford projects like this? It does help make projects affordable. And it also, you know, again, is a way to integrate more choice in the system. When it comes to climate, when it comes to ozone, can Colorado truly afford to expand any highway? Do you ask yourself that? I I don't think these are binary options. I think, you know, there are places where the capacity that we have on our roads right now was built at a time when the state was a lot less populous than it is today. Using some of the examples we've talked about on the interstates especially, you know, those are places where there's just a disconnect between how many people are using it and how much space there is. With that said, there are ways to build projects um, in a balanced fashion that incorporates more transit alongside the ability to drive and that it you know, helps, again, to give people more car and non-car choice as they think about how to use the system. How much does CDOT envision that electric vehicles, so that is the types of cars on the road, uh, makes a dent in, say, the administration's climate goals in ozone? Electric vehicles are... You know, the rollout is slow. It's slow, but it's happening. You know, if you look at where the auto industry is headed, the rollout of electric vehicles is happening and, you know, the the curve is not going to be linear. I mean, you have the major companies, whether it's Ford or General Motors or Tesla or Rivian, companies new and old committing to turn over their entire stock in a matter of, uh, you know, decades, not hundreds of years. So, you know, that's where the industry is headed. And, you know, we need to be ahead of the curve in making it possible for people in Colorado to get those vehicles and to be able to charge them in the places they want to go. Right. You know, if you look at what's coming on the market, there are a litany of four wheel drive SUV electric vehicles that are about a year or two away from delivery. People in Colorado are going to want those cars. So making sure that we enact policies that incentivize the companies bringing those vehicles in like we did, you know, in adopting the current zero emission vehicle policy that was adopted several years ago. One of the reasons for doing that was that it gave the companies a business incentive to bring those cars that people want to Colorado. What about CDOT's own fleet? Is this a gas vehicle we're in, by the way? This is a gas vehicle. Yes, this is a gas vehicle. It's an efficient gas vehicle, but it's a gas vehicle. Uh Uh-huh. So when I think about, you know, Bustang, when I think about your fleet of plows, for instance, are those going to be electrified? Not all vehicles are going to be ready for electrification at the same time. You know, our light duty fleet, we are moving over as soon as we can and as fast as we can. You know, we've incorporated cars like uh, you know, Mitsubishi Outlanders, which are plug-in hybrid electrics. We have uh, Chevy Bolts in the fleet. And we have a lot of hybrid vehicles, including the heavier uh, part of the light duty fleet. You know, we're 
working on getting uh, some of those Ford F-150 Lightnings into the CDOT fleet as fast as we can get them from the company. You know, snow plows are not going to turn over as fast as those later duty vehicles because of their use case. But, you know, we are looking at places where we can test electric trucks. We have a bucket truck that's electric that we uh, recently rolled out. You know, again, getting those pickups into the fleet will allow us to move some of our sort of medium duty operations into electric. So, you know, we're uh, more than just along for the ride when it comes to electrifying our own fleet. Let's talk about Floyd Hill. CDOT has a plan to expand here. What are those plans? Floyd Hill, to uh, your typical traveler, you probably know it is the first place you get stuck in traffic going to the mountains. Part of what makes it so complicated is that this road that we're on operates as a three lanes in each direction. Then there's a pinch point where it goes to two and then back to three. You know, it's kind of like an hourglass. And this is a case where getting the highway to just function in a streamlined way, we think is a matter of not just efficiency, but safety. And that is a project that has been needed for a very long time. And, you know, we're very pleased to finally be getting it done. You know, we just got the biggest competitive grant that CDOT has ever received from the U.S. Department of Transportation to get this project done. And that is to make it consistently three lanes along this corridor. And you think that that's going to make a dramatic difference? I do think it's going to make a dramatic difference. And, you know, there's also a state of good repair element in this project, too, because the bridges are getting old. So, you know, when you do a capacity project like this one, you also upgrade the modernity of the road and the safety profile of it so that it works more like a road constructed today would. Shoshana Lu, when we talk about what emits greenhouse gases in Colorado, the transportation sector is formidable. It's also where the needle is moving the least. You can shut down a coal plant, for instance, but this is the nut to crack. Are you shaving away a little bit at the edges without fundamentally making the changes that are necessary? You started there by comparing transportation to some of the other sectors. And you sort of hit the nail on the head on why it is a different kind of challenge, right? With a finite number of major companies, you know, the entities that have to make changes in order to enact an impact are ones you can count. Now, in transportation you're talking about the sum total of everybody's personal choices. and Not just a, a, not, a utility, right, for instance. Right, and that's the reason why historically the biggest policy actions in the transportation space have been the regulation of the companies that manufacture cars and trucks, right? Because when the federal government does a corporate average fuel economy standard, they're dealing with a finite number of major companies just like you would be doing in the case of the utility sector. You know, those policies have moved the needle tremendously in the past decades and will continue to do so. We talked a little bit about electrification as the fleet turns over. And, you know, it's not low-hanging fruit because it's the turnover of a major industry that, again, has a huge impact on people's lives. But, you know, the policy lever is more straightforward than when you're talking about the built environment where you're, you know, dealing with a lot more actors. Hmm, I hear you saying... CDOT only has so much control and, frankly, economies of scale. The the, the lever is limited for you. It's a different kind of lever. And, you know, I think it's one that is very personal for people. So part of what you're doing when you think about the built environment is trying to sort of segregate what government can do and how that impacts the 
you know, regular people in the way that they live their lives. Where CDOT acts is, you know, about the choices we are giving people. We want to give people as many choices as possible. You can hear the engine revving up this hill here. I've been in that position where you don't want to lose speed as you head west. You know, CDOT's critics say that there's too much spending on things that aren't roads and bridges. So you've talked about having lots of options. And there are some who'd say that's not your job. Fix that road, improve that bridge. How would you respond? I would say that last year the legislature passed and the governor signed a monumental piece of transportation legislation, Senate Bill 260, that very clearly tasks us to look at all of the above. You know, there are very clear statutory mandates for everything that we're doing, whether that's the um, pollution reduction planning standards, which was explicitly tasked in Senate Bill 260, or the transit program, which was a tremendous part of the negotiated outcome of that bill that brought a lot of bipartisan people to the table. So, you know, we are implementing legislatively mandated programs that were quite clearly tasked to see that. I hear you saying the people have spoken through their representatives and options are what they want. I would say that the law is very, very clear about that. I want to ask you about a project in our rearview mirror, and that's Federal Boulevard. That's a state highway, correct? Yes. Yeah. And CDOT has some big plans for how people move through that corridor. It might be unrecognizable to people who knew Federal of yore. I think in cities large and small in Colorado, the roads that CDOT runs often play double duty as Main Street, right? You have big cities like Denver where roads like Federal or Colorado are state highways. You know, you have smaller places like Delta where a road like US 50 runs right through it. Yeah, Um, Montrose too. Montrose too, yeah. In all of those places, you know, making sure that we're being, you know, simply good neighbors in the way that we run the road and are cognizant that our roads run through other people's communities is something that the agency has put a lot of focus on in the past few years. Now, how, how might federal change that? You know, a place like federal, you know, don't get me wrong, we still have to drive on those roads. They carry vital traffic to and through Denver that, you know, is absolutely necessary for mobility in the economy. It's also hard to cross the street in some places. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, see that is right or near Or ride a bike across. Or ride a bike. And, you know, if you think about the things state transportation agencies, including us, have sometimes done in the past to kind of calm traffic, they're not actually that pedestrian friendly, right? Like a concrete traffic island that doesn't have a place to stand doesn't really help people use space in a multimodal way. If you think about like what a complete street means, you're still having driving throughput, right? That's a given. But you think about the kind of space around it as how do you make every inch of this useful to a traveler at some point in their day, you know, even if it somebody who's you know, parking on one part of federal and walking to another. That's as much about design as it is about an either or, because again, you're still driving, right? You're still going to carry cars, but you can also carry other kinds of transportation and they need to be able to coexist. You know, you look at the tragic patterns that have been happening across the country where there have been car and pedestrian incidents that you know can be really devastating, you know, sometimes resulting in fatalities. And you know, we have to think about how you get people to and through these places. Sometimes that's a sidewalk, right? Sometimes it's making sure that when there is a bus stop, you can actually get there. I mean, you know, in neighborhoods across the city, including the one I live live in, 
there are bus stops where you basically have to walk on someone's lawn to get there. You know, it's probably technically city right of way, but you know, it doesn't make it feel safe to use the bus if when you're at the bus stop, you're standing in a place that doesn't feel like it's meant to be stood there. Do you envision bus-only lanes on Federal, on Colorado Boulevard? We're still fairly early in the planning process for what those would look like with specificity. You know, I will say that bus-only lanes are not the only way to make efficient bus service in a city happen. I'm originally from Washington, D.C., you know, the 42 bus. It doesn't operate in the bus-only lane, but it is frequent, it's convenient, and, you know, a whole lot of people take it. So what we're going to try and do is figure out how in each spot you make as you know many people move efficiently as, and as safely as possible. And sometimes that could be bus-only lanes. Sometimes it could be queue jumps that allow buses to get around uh, vehicular traffic. You know, on 119, our team has done a very thorough assessment where they're quite confident that allowing buses to jump the traffic in a few places will basically allow the functionality that a dedicated lane would. And, you know, it has to be case-specific in each place. You know, I'm not of the view that there's a magic solution that is the right thing in every place. And, you know, in each spot, it's about how you create the most options for the most people. How much are you thinking about redundancy, especially in the face of climate change? I mean, there is still a big question mark as to whether you can have a more local route if Glenwood Canyon should close. And, you know, as we know, it's a significant burn scar that's prone to flooding. Well, redundancy is a place where, you know, it is impactful both when you're facing the effects of climate change and also when you're thinking about managing growth. Right. You know, you think again about parts of the country that are used to denser populations. There's a lot more ways around. You know, when U.S. 36 had that collapse several years ago, imagine what would have happened if there wasn't another way around. Right. So a chunk of 36 came careening careening down down between Denver and Boulder. Resiliency of the routes that allow you to bypass is something that is a big focus of the 10 year plan, not just in and around Glenwood Canyon, but in many places where I-70 is sort of the main route. You know, 13 is a good example. US-40 is a good example. And you look at where the traffic goes, even when there's just, you know, a busy day on I-70, and it's those secondary roads. Cottonwood Pass is a place where there has been a long-standing conversation about, you know, how much it should be an alternate route. And, you know, the reason it's complicated is that there's a lot of local sensitivity around how that road gets improved. Yeah. That said, in the last year or so, we've had a breakthrough with our local partners and we're designing improvements that will allow us to kind of turn that into a real project. How soon do you think? Um, the design is happening right now. We got initial funding from the Transportation Commission to be able to design improvements that will keep it a local road, which is the strong preference of the counties, but make it work a little um easier, particularly in emergencies. You know, our hope is to compete for federal grants for that and getting the design done puts us in a really good position to uh, utilize some of those new resiliency funds for which Colorado is a um, key contender. Yeah, and there's national, federal interest in having a backup corridor. I mean, it's a major shipping route, for instance. There's, There's significant interest in having it be a backup corridor and you know, for the communities who live around there, having another way around is really important. You know, it is hard to be in Grand Junction if Glenwood Canyon closes, and we need to think about what it means for the communities on both sides of the canyon when it closes. We are recording this, uh, once again, aboard Pegasus, as we head towards Idaho Springs. 
It's a pretty overcast day, a reminder that snow flurries are probably not far. Given the labor shortage that so many industries are facing, do you have enough snowplow drivers? You were about 300 maintenance workers short, as I recall. Across the country, the workforce challenges in you know these vital essential sectors that we all rely on so much is a big global challenge. With that said, we have what I believe is one of the most creative approaches to both managing that in the immediate term and also thinking ahead to how you create a workforce of the future in a space where we're going to need professional operators not just a year from now, but a decade from now. What's your hack, Shoshana? <laughs> well, right now, and you know, just to be very clear for how we get the job done this season, you know, we're building on a strategy that worked really well last year where we increased the kind of nimble surge capacity so that groups would sort of move to the next area over in order to support each other and particularly going west along the corridor. So you have more people in Denver. You shift their area of operation west so that you can shift everybody west and make sure that you have teams populating the corridor. We also have a program um, that's worked, again, very well in the past, including this summer, where we offer overtime incentives for groups to sign up to do a longer shift in a place like Glenwood Canyon. So, you know, we had teams who spent their weekends out helping with the management of flood season in Glenwood Canyon. And, um, you know, by having kind of an agile approach to the workforce, you can get the job done, even if you're short in some areas. It reminds me a bit of a, a, a chess game. You know, you're, you're thinking about uh, the pieces and how you can move them and where you can move them and when you can move them to maximize them. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I should also note that our plows can carry more snow than they used to. So, you know, we we add a wing onto uh, many, if not most, of our plows that allows you to pick up twice as much in one haul. And how are you cracking the labor nut? So the labor nut is is, is a long game, right? And, you know, it starts with getting qualified people. We are running our own training program where you know our current class of candidates in our commercial driver's license program has about 43 people biggest class yet you know what's neat is that the people coming in are not just getting a credential they're getting a career and you know the energy that we see with a lot of these uh, new candidates who are coming in you know really is what you need to think about what the workforce looks like in the future you know you're seeing more diversity we have a lot of uh, women operators now which is very exciting but you've got to convince them that it's more than a job, that it's a career. You do. And the best way to convince them is to you know, show them the impact that they can have and also develop a cohort, right? If you're trying to get, you know, let's use the example of uh, getting women into the workforce, mm. right? It doubles the candidate pool um, in an area where that traditionally has not been the norm. And once you have some, it's easier to recruit more because... It's hard to be the only. It's hard to be the only one. We have just pulled off to Idaho Springs, there's that sign where the gold rush began. And the idea here, Shoshana, is that we'll pull up to a station. And then what about that last mile issue? That's how people have referred to the idea that, you know, transit only brings you so far, and then what? Well, in this area, they have local transit. So we are working closely with Idaho Springs to tie in our Bustang and Pegasus into their local circulator route. We're actually working with them on designing a mobility hub that will connect those services. And, you know, Idaho Springs is a pretty walkable place, too. So you have lots of... I, I've, I've actually taken this uh, Pegasus here on the weekend and, you know, taken the rest on foot. And that's just what we did, parking and hoofing it to the center of town. 
And just one block over is the heart of Idaho Springs Miner Street, which remains closed off to vehicles. Uh, there's dining on the outside here. It's a pedestrian-friendly place. It absolutely is. You know, Idaho Springs is a fascinating place at the crux of you know the highway and you know, a historic small town, right? You can hear I-70 uh, just to our right, right here. And if you think about how the businesses here get their business, it is highly reliant on the traffic that comes through I-70, right? So I-70 is vital to sort of the business model for this place, but it also is a community where, you know, for decades they've advocated for how the uh, sort of shape of the highway and the interface, yes, we need to modernize I-70, but we also need to do it in a way that preserves these places that are so important to the, you know, history and the current culture and economy of Colorado. And, you know, I think they've done a very nice job achieving that balance. You, know, you look at their kind of Main Street quality on Minor Street, and these businesses are packed, you know, in peak hours. It's kind of an overcast weekday right now, but, you know, you come here on a Sunday and it's hard to get a seat. And that's actually, I think, become more so in the last few years. But at the same time, you know, we are building both expansion and transit projects in close proximity to them. And we're thinking carefully and mindfully about the, the junctures, right? The places like that mobility center where you'll come into town and, you know, how you get on and off the highway and how you get on and off the bus. And I think this is a place that kind of exemplifies the all of the above needs that we have in infrastructure and transportation. Shoshana, thank you so much for the ride and the conversation. Absolutely. Thank you. Shoshana Liu has led the Colorado Department of Transportation for the last four years as it slowly shifts away from massive highway expansion towards more commuting options. CPR's Nathaniel Miner produced our conversation. This is Colorado Matters. From CPR News and KRCC, I'm Ryan Warner. You're about to step out the door. You've got your keys, your wallet, and CPR. If you have your phone with you, we're just a tap away. Listen live at CPR.org or use the Colorado Public Radio app on your phone. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Climate disasters are robbing people of their homes. That includes last year's Marshall Fire in Boulder County. In its ashes, one team wants to build an affordable house that won't just cut emissions, but help families guard against future climate hazards. CPR's Sam Brash reports. On the day of the fire, Peter Ruprecht felt a familiar chill pass through his home. His family lived in a working-class neighborhood in Superior, Colorado, built in the 1990s. The houses were definitely uh, built to a price point. The wind would blow in through the walls, and so it was cold in the house in the winter. It was just kind of uncomfortable. He could feel those drafts as the wind picked up last December. His back porch looked out onto the foothills, and he noticed a puff of smoke on the horizon around 11 a.m., You know, we grabbed our box of important documents, bag of dog food, (laughs) put that stuff in the car. And the family drove to a hotel. The next morning, they watched helicopter news footage of the burn area. The entire neighborhood was gone. Today, it's just a bunch of vacant construction sites. After living in such a leaky home, Ruprecht knew he wanted something more energy efficient and better sealed against wildfire smoke and air pollution. That's proved tricky within their budget, and that's a common story. Low insurance payouts and record high construction costs have squeezed fire victims. And then, last summer... Somebody posted in our neighborhood Slack group about this Restore house that, you know, was kind of ready to go. 
the link took him to a web page with a picture of a rendering. It showed the Restore Passive House. Imagine two Monopoly homes placed in like an L shape around a two-car garage. And so that made it really easy for us to decide that actually we could do a passive house. And what exactly is a passive house? It's a European standard for a super energy efficient home. The Ruprechts had done some research and thought one might be a great fit. But until they learned about the Restore passive home, they didn't think they could afford one. A lot of people just assumed it does cost a heck of a lot more. This is Andrew Mitchler. He's a passive home designer leading the Restore project. So we really wanted to like prove that point and really make this even cheaper than some of the homes that are coming out. Now, none of those homes have been built just yet. But to give me an idea of what they might be like, he toured me through his own home. It's perched on a cliff above Loveland, Colorado. Sure, let's go inside and take a look. Mitchler's place is simple and modern. In 2016, it became Colorado's first certified passive house. Today, he says there's only about 20 others. So what we do is we design buildings that are extremely uh, well insulated, and as a result, they end up using about one-tenth of the energy of a basic code home nowadays. One-tenth of the energy. One-tenth of the energy needs which could really help out as communities transition away from fossil fuels to renewable energy. And Mitchler isn't kidding when he says well-insulated. The walls of this place are 18 inches. That's the width of a car tire. It means each window has a broad seat at its base. It's nice to sit next to a window that's triple-paned and really comfortable in the wintertime. He says those thick walls have an extra design benefit in fire-prone environments. They rule out any complex architecture. The house is simplified in shape, so there's less places for embers to get in to the corners, nooks and crannies of the house and start fires from there. But here's the problem. Until recently, Andrew and other passive home builders have mostly sold one-off homes, often for high-end customers. It's new for us, uh, building kind of the standard typical American home. Passive home builders have struggled to go mainstream, even in climate-minded communities like Superior. The biggest challenge is cost. The community backed off green building codes after the disaster because people wanted to rebuild quickly and affordably. The Restore House makes a strong case that green homes aren't always a luxury option, especially with new incentives from the state and Excel Energy, Colorado's largest power company. For a passive house, fire victims can now get discounts worth about $50,000. So that gets the cost down to $550,000 and hopefully less. This, again, is Peter Ruprecht. That price shakes out to just above $200 per square foot. That's above the average nationwide, but in Boulder County? It doesn't cost that much more than a production house would. And even if it's a little more expensive, his home will be less flammable, more sealed against wildfire smoke, and far more climate friendly. I think having a way better house is a silver lining from this whole disaster. Gonna be able to come back to our neighborhood and have a house that's just gonna perform way better. The Ruprechts are now the first family to sign up to build the Restore Home, and they hope they're not the last. Because one fire-resistant, climate-friendly home is great. A whole neighborhood? Even better. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. You can see pictures of the Restore Passive House at CPR.org. The pandemic amplified political polarization. As doctors learned more about COVID-19, protocols changed and people started questioning the guidance. Science itself came under scrutiny. It's an issue at the forefront of this year's Aspen Ideas Festival. Here's CPR Audio Innovations producer Emily Williams. The pandemic has been a complicated time for science. We've seen big scientific successes, 
like the fastest new vaccine development in history. But even while science was saving lives, more people were losing faith in it. A lot of Americans protested mask mandates. Are you going to allow the government to tell you you have to wear a mask? Refused vaccines. Nearly every patient with COVID symptoms they're taking to the hospital is unvaccinated. And lost trust in our biggest scientific institutions. A big question facing the CDC, though, is how to regain your trust following years of public debate over their guidance. Dr. Ashish Jha has thought a lot about this problem. He's in charge of the White House's response to COVID-19. He says scientists have missed something big during this pandemic. I think we underappreciated the level of mistrust that exists, and we also underestimated the amount of misinformation and disinformation that's out there. I sort of think of it as we kind of got the biological science right, but we didn't get the social science right. Ja spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June. He says scientists should be thinking more about why they didn't get the social science right. And he has some thoughts on how scientists can be better communicators. Improving the way scientists talk about science starts at the most fundamental definition of what science is. So part of the conversation we need to have is how do we understand science? Science has become this sense of like, this is truth, it's a destination. Science is a journey, right? Science is a process. Science is how we figure out how the world works. People often think that science gives us an answer. Science usually gives us a way to think about the problem. And trusting the science is about trusting the process by which you come up with an answer. So you get 100 scientists, you're going to get 150 different opinions. That's totally fine. The thing that makes it makes it coherent and makes it workable is that they're all taking a similar approach to solving or figuring out a problem. And that, I think, has not been clearly communicated to people. The people Ja was speaking to at Aspen Ideas were asked if they believe in science. And just about everyone raised their hand. Those people are still the norm. But the portion of Americans who don't believe in science has grown since COVID to nearly one in four people, according to a recent Pew poll. And in some ways, seeing trust in science go down during a global pandemic is puzzling. So the reason why I think most people in this room trust science generally is because it is the most powerful tool we have for solving complex human problems. It's not the only tool we have, but it is the most powerful. You're faced with a global pandemic, how do you counter a global pandemic? You build vaccines, you build therapeutics. How do you do those things? That's what the scientific process gives you. So it's fundamental for solving human problems. But then the question is, why are one four people not so convinced that it's so good for them? That is puzzling. And my kind of mental model, but I'd be curious what other people think, is that we in the scientific community have not done a good enough job of explaining to people how science benefits them in their day-to-day life. That we have not done a good enough job connecting the dots between what science produces and the problems, the real-life problems that people face. You know, in the past, if you did a, uh, an experiment, you wrote up your paper, you submitted it to a journal, and it would be published six months later. And in this pandemic, everything went to preprints. 
And so the turnaround time of people building on everybody else's work just accelerated multiple fold. And that was a major reason why we got vaccines and treatments. And all of that was scientists trusting each other. It's interesting to me that at the moment where there was more trust among scientists than we've ever seen before, we struggled to connect the benefits of all that scientific progress to their lives. And that is a problem. And I think we need to go back and do more thinking about why that happened. Ja has tried to figure out what we could have done better. He says these trust issues go further back than the start of the pandemic. Faith in big institutions was already declining before COVID. There are a lot of Americans who feel abandoned by our institutions. And I think those individuals are much more susceptible to misinformation, to politicization of basic public health tools. And then what happened in this pandemic is I think a lot of it got accelerated and a lot of it got exploited to make it much worse. Whether they be big companies, whether you see universities or government or anybody else, and you feel like they're not in it for your interest, that you don't see the benefit in your life to the challenges you have, you are far less likely to trust those institutions. And then I think it is incumbent on people in those institutions, in my last job at university, in my current job in government, to help people understand how these institutions are serving a public good. And if you can do that, then I think people are far less susceptible to the misinformation about those institutions that follow. You know, if someone shared information, misinformation to me about my mom, I'm not gonna buy it. But if it's someone you don't trust, someone you don't know, and then you hear misinformation, you're much more susceptible to that. So I think building trust in institutions is a huge part of combating misinformation. Another part of combating misinformation comes back to how scientists are communicating. Ja says the pandemic showed him how important it is for scientists to get comfortable talking about uncertainty. And Ja says there's a reason why scientists need to give people some kind of answer, even if that answer is, I don't know yet. Here's the, the lesson, the learning from the pandemic, is misinformation thrives in vacuums. So something happens, and people want to try to understand what just happened. We've got a new variant. Omicron just popped up. What does this mean? And there is a period of time where scientists want to say, give us three months, we're going to sort all this out, and we'll come back to you. Well, during those three months, there are plenty of people who are going to fill that information void. And I actually think, as public health scientists, it's irresponsible to leave information voids empty. And so what I have tried to do, and what I have encouraged my colleagues to do, is go out there, be very honest about what you know and don't know. So don't overstate what you know. Explain what you don't know. But give people your first impression. So I remember the morning after Omicron was identified in South Africa, I was on TV, and people were like, is this a problem? And the answer was, it was an honest answer, we don't know. However, here's what worries me about it. And here's how we're going to find out. And so you give people a roadmap, because it's that uncertainty that really bothers people. You give them your first draft, you give them your judgment, and you explain that your first draft may need editing over time. And I don't know, I, I think most people are pretty receptive to that. Scientists hate that stuff. They're like, I want to get the right answer before I go talk about it. But the pandemic moves way too fast for that. 
scientists could do a better job of sharing their first drafts and explaining how science helps us in our daily lives. But there's also something you can do. Because if you know how scientists should be communicating, we can use that knowledge to find and share trusted scientific sources. Ja says to look for the experts who are talking about science as a process. If you're trying to assess is somebody really an expert, you want to see them say things like, I don't know. You want them not only to change their mind, but explain why they changed their mind. That's actually, I think, how you build credibility. And for people who are trying to figure out, is this person a real expert, you actually want people to change their views as facts are changing. If you see somebody who's been saying exactly the same thing for the last two years, I'd be pretty suspicious of that. Dr. Ashish Jha spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June. Jha continues to serve as the COVID-19 response coordinator for the White House. His team is currently focused on rolling out the next COVID booster. You can hear Jha's full Aspen Ideas session, featuring questions from journalist Perry Peltz and members of the audience, at aspenideas.org. Dr. Ashish Shah is a White House COVID-19 response coordinator. CPR Audio Innovations producer Emily Williams put that segment together. You can hear more talks from speakers like Dr. Shah in the Aspen Ideas to Go podcast. Find it wherever you listen. And we'll also put a link at CPR.org in the Colorado Matters podcast. Animal shelters across the Front Range are overcrowded, and some potential pets are having a hard time finding homes. CPR's Tony Gorman recently visited the Denver and Aurora animal shelters. The barking is louder, and the meows are more frequent in animal shelters these days. Recently, the Aurora Animal Shelter had to limit which animals they could take in. Here's community outreach coordinator Nicole Robbins. Just because of our capacity issues, we've had to leave that open for strays coming in or any of those animals that don't currently have a home. Some blame the pandemic, but Denver Animal Shelter's Megan Dilmore says the lack of veterinarians nationwide is a huge issue. Animals have to be spayed and neutered before they're adopted out from a shelter. And so um, if we're not able to get them all through surgery in a timely fashion, then those animals are going to stay in the shelter. And she says the problem isn't just that people don't want their pets. There's definitely a lack of pet-friendly housing in America in general, um, or there are really specific breeds that certain landlords um, or companies won't allow in their complexes. Other reasons include newborn babies and pets not getting along. And with all these mouths to feed, the pet food pantry is running low. We are getting a lot of donations regularly, which is great, but we are just getting a lot of requests um, in a way where if somebody needs a 50-pound dog bag food, we're going to give it to them, then we're lower. Dilmore says pet owners should try rehoming animals themselves first. Try and go through other avenues. Do you have a family member or a friend that could is possibly interested in adopting the dog or cat or ferret or what have you? But if it does need to be brought somewhere, we'd prefer it be brought back to us. We 
don't judge here. And Dilmore says people should visit because you never know what furry friend you might meet. Sometimes people are like, I was not planning on taking a 10-pound chihuahua home. I wanted this boxer over here, but I fell in love with it just walking through the shelter. And so it's really cool to see stuff like that. Um, that's one of my favorite parts of the job. Tony Gorman, CPR News. Thanks for joining us today, and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Nathaniel Miner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. 